I notice we have uh, quite a few empty spots here this morning. I think the snow might have scared some folks off here. It's funny how uh, we get the first couple snowfalls, and it feels like it's going to be a major storm. And then after a while, we get four or five inches, and we consider that just a light dusting. And so it's, it's funny how we just get used to the weather, isn't it? Anyway, praise the Lord for you hearty folks who ventured out today into the cold tundra, and you made it. You are here, so praise God for that. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me now to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, as we continue our march through the book of Hebrews. You will recall uh, verses 1 through 5 are the preamble to this new section, which runs all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. Verse, verses 1 through 5 then tell us the main point of the first seven chapters, if you will, and lay the groundwork for this next section. What was the main point? Well, if you have your notes from last week, uh, we didn't have to stretch our brains too far because verse 1 tells us the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. So Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. And Jesus is better because of his position. What position is that? He is seated, indicating his work was done once and for all. Secondly, he was not only seated, but he was seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Second, Jesus is a better high priest because of his place. Whereas the place where Jesus, Jesus ministers, he ministers in the sanctuary. We saw that in verse 2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Remember the sanctuary, this is God's holy of holies in heaven. It is the true tabernacle of God, uh, not one made with human hands. Third, we saw in verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Jesus is a better high priest, we said, because of his gifts and sacrifice. Notice sacrifice is singular. Gifts are plural. Christ takes our thanks. He takes our praise. He takes our worship and our dedication, which can only be accomplished in and through him, and he offers them to God the Father as a gift, a sweet aroma to God. And, of course, his sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, tells us was a once and for all sacrifice where the the Levitical priests had to make sacrifices again and again and again. Christ's sacrifice was one time, once and for all. And then fourthly, we saw here in verse 4, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Jesus could not minister as a high priest in an earthly tabernacle. That's why you don't see any passages where he is ministering as a high priest during his earthly ministry. He was not from the tribe of Levi, which is the requirement God had set in his law for the priests. And thus he would have been disqualified according to the law. His ministry would be done in a better sanctuary. And then fifthly, we saw in verse uh, 5 here, these, uh, those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, 
that you make all these things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Jesus is a better high priest because his ministry is not a mere copy or a shadow. And this is why God warned Moses to construct the earthly tabernacle so it would reflect the greater heavenly reality, a reality in which he had given a preview to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we looked at those passages last week in Exodus 24 and 25. The earthly tabernacle is thus the copy, the shadow, the heavenly reality is the substance. And so uh, this heavenly reality is our great high priest ministers to and for us, and that's where he does that. So his priestly ministry is better than the ministry of the Levitical priesthood. Just as the just as the that's true is better than a copy, and the genuine is better than a shadow. And Jesus has a better ministry than those priests of the old covenant because the new covenant is better. And that starts our whole next section here about this new covenant that our great high priest ministers. Not only is Jesus a minister in the sanctuary and a king upon the throne, but he's also the mediator of a better covenant. So we're going to want to look at that here this morning. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege, the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth. And Lord, as we put a capstone on these first seven chapters and begin this new section in Hebrews, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us open hearts and minds to your word, to the truth of your word. And Lord, it's been difficult at times working through some of these deep theological points, but Lord, we're growing from it. We may be kicking and screaming, Lord, but we're growing through it, and we're digging deep into your word. It's your desire, Father, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, and we do that through the washing of your word. So thank you, Father. And I pray now, again, give us open hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. I pray we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and that all we say and do in this remaining hour would bring honor and glory to you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you bought a computer in the last six months, chances are there's already a new and better computer that's completely uh, outdated the old one. It's, it's completely, uh, the, your stuff that you bought six months ago is no longer really relevant anymore as there's newer features, newer gadgets, faster processors, more memory, whatever it is. Uh, and the same is true, this is precisely what the author of Hebrews wants to make. He wants to now talk about, he's been spending seven chapters explaining to you why Jesus is better. Better than the angels, right? Better than, the, uh, better, than the media, uh, better than Joshua, better than Moses, better than Aaron. He's been walking through saying, Jesus is better, better. Now he wants to say, because we have a better high priest, he also mediates a better covenant, and that what we had before is now outdated, and you have a new covenant that is in it. He wants to make sure we understand what that new covenant is. Now, there are two key words in this passage that we need to understand so that we can understand this passage going forward. The two words are mediator and covenant. The author never uses the word mediator without using the word covenant. He always puts those two together. The word mediator means one who stands in the middle. 
one who stands in the middle. That's what a mediator is. So, for example, a mediator in a contract dispute is one who stands between two disagreeing parties and brings them together. That's what a mediator would do. The Apostle Paul tells us we have one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. Now turn with me, if you will, to Galatians 3.19. We're going to move around and look at some additional passages, probably more than we usually do, but I want you to kind of get a context here this morning as we lay the groundwork for this new covenant. And then next week, we're going to tell you why it's better. But for right now, we just want to lay the groundwork this week. Look at Galatians 3.19. Paul asked the question, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Here again, the Apostle Paul uses that same word to describe the mediator of the law, which was Moses. Moses was the mediator. It was Moses then who stood between God and Israel, Israel, bringing them together. How did he do that? He would instruct them in all that God had said, and then he would implement all that God told him to implement. So he stood between God and man, God and Israel, And he was the go-between. God would speak to Moses, then Moses would speak to the people. The people would complain, then then Moses would go back to God. So he was the mediator in between these two. Then our next word is covenant. Covenant. Now the word covenant is, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more because there's a couple different words for covenant, but the word covenant is the Bible word used to describe the relationship between God and the people with whom he chooses to be in a relationship with, okay? God and the people with whom he chooses to be in a relationship with. God's covenant relations, relationships with his people are always fundamentally a function of his grace and mercy. Now, why do I say that? Because it's God who sets up these covenants. It's God who's the initiator of these covenants. And why? Because he sets his love upon us. It's not us bargaining with God. It's God telling us and seeking us out and saying, here is the relationship I will have with you. Very important. It's a result of his sovereign decision to set his love on a particular person or people for reasons that are entirely his own. Not because we deserve it. So with those two terms defined, we're now in a position to explore this idea of Christ, who's not only a better high priest, but also a better high priest who mediates a better new covenant. But what exactly is it that makes this new covenant even necessary? What's wrong with the old covenant? What's wrong with the law? That would have been the old covenant. And then second. What exactly is it that makes this new covenant better anyway? Well, the next couple of verses answer those questions for us. So let's look at verse 6, shall we? Together, back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But now, remember we just went through 1 through 5 and told you he was seated, had a better position, all of that. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. 
Now remember, the purpose of a covenant is to establish the relationship between two parties. And there are several covenants that God established with man that are recorded in the Old Testament. For example, God made a covenant with Adam. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, right? There was a covenant with Noah called the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. The Noah covenant establishes principle whereby man is to rule over God's kingdom and on earth. Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. Then he ratified it again in in chapters 15 and 17. And that covenant with Abraham was to bless him and make him a great nation. And from his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That covenant... This covenant that God made with Abraham was an unconditional covenant. In other words, it was not based upon anything that Abraham would do to deserve it. It was a covenant that was made with Abraham that was to be embraced by faith. And as he embraced this agreement, this covenant with God, that faith of his in God and his promises would be credited to Abraham as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Later on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes another covenant. This one with David, called the Davidic covenant. And this covenant, God promised David the following, that David's house and his throne and his kingdom shall be established forever. This too was an unconditional covenant. These were all important covenants, but there's one more that the writer of Hebrews wants to share with us here that he's referring to in this passage. And that covenant was different in in several ways. First, it was the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai, Sinai, called the Mosaic Covenant, the law. This one was made with the nation, not just one individual, with the nation. And the covenants that God made with Noah and Abraham and David were covenants that were made to individuals but had national implications. But this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses, the law, was actually made with the entire nation of Israel. Secondly, the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Where the other covenants were unconditional, they all God is the one who made the covenant, God is the one who determined all the parameters of it, and God was the one who ensured that the covenant would be carried through. But this covenant was different. This Mosaic covenant was different. It was a conditional covenant. And conditional covenants here <clears throat> uh, means that it was dependent upon their actions to keep the covenant. In other words, if you do this, then God will do that. If you don't do this, then God will respond like this. So there were conditions, if and then, if and then, if and then. God said if they kept his commandments, then what? He would bless them and lead them into the promised land. But there was a problem with this covenant, as we'll see in the next few verses. So the Lord says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with you that's based on better promises. Jesus, if you're following along in your notes, mediates a better covenant with better promises. Jesus mediates a better covenant with better 
promises. Now, let's look at verse 7 together. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion sought for a second. You may recall when we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, that the author of Hebrews basically said the same thing about the law. Look at that. Turn back a page. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Remember he said, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of that the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? He's basically asking the same thing. If the Levitical priesthood was so good, why did God determine beforehand that another priesthood would come in the order of Melchizedek and that the Messiah would come from that priesthood, not the one that everyone, the one that they were used to, not the one that they had based all of their sacrifices and offerings on. Well, he, now he asked the same thing, but he applies it to the covenant. The law, remember, was the foundation of their entire way of life. If you were Jewish, the law was everything to you. You wrapped your whole identity around the law and how well you kept the Sabbath and how you attended the feast and how you made the sacrifice and how you kept yourself blameless before God by practicing and adhering to all the commandments. It was through your obedience to the law. So the law was everything. And the priests who were the mediators of the law were in a very exalted position as the ones who spoke for God and administered the law. So remember in chapter 7, the argue, he argued that the priesthood required a change of law since the law and the priesthood were bound together. Now he says, remember he used Psalm 110 to show that David had already predicted that change would happen. Remember, actually it's in Genesis, you kind of skip over it in Genesis 14, and you're like Melchizedek, if you can even pronounce it. You're like, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, he just says uh, this priest, Melchizedek, Abraham offers tithes to him. Then later in Psalm 110, about 1,500 years later, David mentions that the Messiah will come from, the, from Melchizedek. You're like, what, where did, where's that in the Bible? It's just two lines in Genesis chapter 14. Now, the author quotes a different Old Testament source. He's going to quote Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 to show once again that the Old Testament had also predicted a new covenant would replace the law. And the reason for replacing the Old Covenant was that there was a fault to be found in the Old Covenant. Now, he's quick to add that the problem was not with the law itself, but where was the problem with the law? It was not in the law itself, for he says and tells us in verse 8 here, for finding fault with them. Who is them? Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans chapter 7. Let's take a look at that. Keep your place in Hebrews. Put your thumb there. And go back a few books to Romans chapter 7. Verse 12. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Paul writes, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, 
verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned the sin in the flesh. As sinners, we are unable to keep God's holy law. Why? Because the law did not supply the change of heart or the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit that we need to obey it. Now go to Galatians chapter 3. Stop off there, if you will, on our way back to Hebrews. Stop off at Galatians chapter 3 again. And let's read this whole little section here, because this is what Paul is trying to explain in Galatians about the law. He says this, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. He says that's, that's emphatic in the original language. For if a law had been given which was, un, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon the law. In other words, if you could have been saved by the law, then you would have been saved by the law, but because the law was unable to save you, you could never be saved by your rule-keeping law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul explains in Galatians, the purpose of the law was not to impart spiritual life. It was to reveal our sin before God so that we would be driven to faith in Christ as our only remedy. The law was never intended to save. Even when God set it up and commanded and ordained it through angels and had Moses be the mediator, it was never intended to impart spiritual life. It was always intended to show us how helplessly, haplessly, utterly dependent we are upon God for our salvation. To show us what wretched sinners we are and how much we need a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. The people of that day thought God wanted them to keep these Ten Commandments as the only way that they could please Him. So they felt He demanded this rigid, diligent observance of the Ten Commandments, but what they didn't understand, though God pointed out to them many times, was that God never thought they would be able to adhere to it perfectly. Matter of fact, He knew they wouldn't. He knew they could not. He did not give it them to them to be kept, for he knew they could not keep it. He gave it to them to show them they could not keep it so they'd be ready to receive their Savior. So again, the old covenant, the law, was not faultless in the sense that it fails to do what God intended to do. It's not flawed in that sense at all. God never intended for these old covenant rituals to be the ultimate thing that people trusted in, although... There are many who still do today. Those old covenant rituals themselves were designed to point away from themselves to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as our only means of salvation. We'll go back to Hebrews then chapter 8. 
Let's look at verse 8a, the first part of it. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. So in verse 8, we have this direct quote from Jeremiah 31. The Lord spoke of this new covenant during the time that Josiah was the king in Judah. I'll give you a little history lesson with Josiah. After years of rebellion against the Lord by Israel, Josiah became the king of Judah. Josiah, you may remember, is known as the boy king because he became a king when he was only eight years old. And Josiah loved God and was a good king. And he reigned as king for 31 years. But during that time, when Josiah was 26 years old, he came upon a copy of the law of God. And that is how removed they were from the word of God. It wasn't even around. He came upon a copy of it. Whenever a people or a nation forsakes the word of God, wickedness will be the end result of that equation. Josiah, upon finding the law, seeks to enact it. He calls the nation back to repentance, and there is this, and there's a revival, although it's very short-lived. And Josiah is frustrated at the people's inability to keep the law. But with self-righteous confidence, they tried to keep it anyway, which they could not, of course. And God knew they couldn't, but they pretended to keep it, incidentally, just as we do today. We set up a standard for ourselves or accept the standard of others around us. We honestly try to keep it, but we cannot For a fallen man cannot simply keep a moral law. But rather than admit it, we begin to cover it up. Then we lower the requirements or excuse our failure by saying, well, everybody does it. Or we promise to try harder and so on. The excuses go. And this is what happened with Israel. They pretended to keep the law and deceived themselves as they kept sinking lower and lower and lower down the moral ladder, if you will, to the point that God's word's not even around. They have completely removed it. At that moment, at their lowest point, when they had sunk into the darkness of pagan worshiping around, they were worshiping the pagans around them, and all kinds of filthy abominations, at that point they were carried captive into Babylon. God sent a prophet to them named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, pleaded with them, but they would not have it. In fact, God told them they would not have it, but yet they did. Jeremiah informed them in chapter 31 that there was a new covenant yet to come. Now, there are two words to use to describe a covenant, and I think this is important for you to know. You don't need to know the Greek word, but you need to know these. there are two different words. One is sunethike. There'll be a quiz later. Sunethike. That was used like a marriage covenant. Two equal parties would get into a covenant or an agreement together. Sune in Greek means equal. Sunethike. Okay? So they would have these agreements, like a marriage agreement. You have two equal parties agree to the terms of the part of. Uh, of the covenant. The second one is diathike, and that is the word that we have here in our text. 
And that's the word that's used all throughout this. Every time you see the word covenant, it's the second word, diatheke. Now, diatheke describes is not a is not an agreement of two equal parties. The best example of this would be like a um, a will or a testament. If I make up a will, I'm going to do a diatheke covenant, which means I'm going to make an agreement where I set the terms. I'm going to tell where everything goes. This is my last will and testament. There's no bargaining. When they read the last will and testament, it is what it is. I decided. I made the terms. I set forth. That is how it is. And the reason that diatheke is used instead of sunetheke is because God never enters into an agreement on equal terms. God doesn't come to us and say, look, here are my terms. And we go, well, here are my terms, God. Here's what I think we should be doing. That never happens. You never argue the terms of God's covenant. Well, look, God, if you'll just give a little bit on this point over here, then I'll, then I'll, I'll compromise over here. Absolutely not. God sets the terms of the covenant. He makes all the parameters of it. And then he says, this is my covenant for you. Take it or not. There is no negotiation. God makes a covenant. You either accept it or you reject it, but you never change it. Now, the best, again, in the illustration, this is a will. It's made by one person. Either accept, either agree to it or not. But our relationship with God is based solely on God's terms, never on our negotiated terms, never. Secondly, I want you to notice what kind of covenant it is. It's a new covenant. There are two different Greek words for new. The one that's used here means something that didn't exist prior. The other one means something new but of the same vein. Like, I got a new car. Well, it's still a car. It's just a newer type of car. But this word, kainos, means new, and it never existed before. It's new in character and type. So what does that mean? We have a covenant that God has made where God has set the terms. God has set the terms. God has set the parameters. He's the one who makes it. He's the one that's going to ensure that it happens. And it's unlike the other covenants. That is the new covenant. So what did we learn about this covenant? God is the one that's making the covenant. Secondly, it's not just a variation of an old covenant. It's not just an altered version of the old covenant. It is a new covenant. Now look at the second part of verse 8. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This new covenant is with Israel. The new covenant is with Israel. God has never made a covenant with Gentiles, as far as I can see, nor will he ever. The new covenant is not made with the church. It is made with the same people the old covenant is made with. It is made with the people of Israel. You might be asking, well, what what does that mean for us? Well, we are the beneficiaries of the old covenant, just like Gentiles could be beneficiaries of the old covenant. We're beneficiaries of the new covenant, just like they were of the old. But notice, it could not be any clearer. I will make a new covenant with whom? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's all of Israel. That's the northern part and the southern part. That's all. Nowhere in Scripture do you read 
that God ever made a covenant with Gentiles. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Actually, for context, we'll pick it up in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and what? The covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promise. The covenants are between God and his people, Israel. Does that mean that as Gentiles, we're not partakers of any of the blessings of these covenants? No. When you come into the new covenant, you are a beneficiary of that new covenant as a Gentile. But you can experience all that's in that new covenant that God made with Israel through faith. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Here we're back again. Galatians chapter 3. But this time, pick it up. In verse 6, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, listen to this. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Notice that there. So then, those who are of what? Faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. When you believe in Jesus and all that Jesus Christ has done, You become a spiritual son of Abraham, and you receive the blessings of that covenant. You are adopted in and receive the blessings. Look at verse 14 in the same chapter, Galatians 3. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is through Jesus Christ that the Abrahamic blessing comes to us through the new covenant in his blood. Look quickly at the last verse here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. All New Testament believers have become a beneficiary of the Abrahamic covenant, even though we're not Jewish. How is that possible? Because of the new covenant. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross on your behalf, you are receiving the new covenant. The promised blessing through Abraham has become yours. You are a child of Abraham by faith. By faith. Look at the Gospel of John. I told you we're going to move around a little bit. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We need to do it quickly. We're running out of time. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10. 
Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own, what? Did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Does that mean that Israel loses its blessing? No. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When does Israel become saved? During the tribulation. And then comes the millennial kingdom. The promises that God made in this covenant, in all the covenants were to Israel. But we are grafted into those promises. How? Not through our nationality, not through our heritage, but through our faith. Just as we receive the blessings, as everyone has received the blessings of all the previous covenants, you could be grafted in through faith. So Jesus, for your notes here, mediates a better covenant. Jesus mediates a better covenant. That word mediator means one who stands in the middle. The word covenant is the Bible used to describe the relationship between God and his people whom he chooses to be in a relationship. What exactly is it that makes this new covenant better anyway? Jesus mediates a better covenant with better promises. What are those promises? You'll find those out next week. So let's cover those with you. First, the Mosaic covenant, the law was made with a nation not just an individual, so it was different. The covenants that God made with Noah, Abraham, and David were covenants that were made to individuals, but they had national implications. The Mosaic Covenant was made with Israel. Secondly, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. That means it was dependent on them to keep it. And of course, how did they do? Not so good, but God knew that. Right? God knew that. God said if they kept his commandments, he would bless them and lead them, but there was a problem with this covenant. So the Lord says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with better promises. We'll find out again those better promises next week, but we know for sure there were problems with this. Look at verse 7. There would be no need for a new covenant if the old covenant was faultless. Faultless. The reason for replacing the old covenant was there was a fault to be found in the old covenant, but that fault was not in the law itself, but was our inability to keep the law. That was the fault in it. The old covenant was not flawless in the sense it fails to do what God intended to do. God never intended for those old covenant rituals to be the ultimate thing we put our trust in. All of that law's purpose, remember Paul said it was a tutor, it was a schoolmaster to show us how much we need a savior. Show us how sinful we really are and how much we need a savior. We learn two additional things about the covenant. This covenant is made on God's terms. For your notes here, God's terms. 
And secondly, it's not just a different variation of the Old Covenant. It's entirely new. Lastly, we learned that the new covenant that God made was with Israel, just like every other covenant. Does that mean that the Gentiles are not partakers? No. When you believe in Jesus and all that Jesus Christ has done, you become a spiritual son of Abraham, receive the spiritual blessings of that covenant. Okay. So here, now the writer has says that Jesus is the perfect mediator. He's the perfect mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. All that Moses could not do because of human weakness, Jesus does. Not only as a better priest, but also as the mediator of a better covenant. He brings God and men together perfectly, providing access to God through the new covenant and faith in the new covenant, faith in Christ that provides us access to God, not one time a year for the high priest, only on one day, but continually. The veil is now torn in half, and because of Christ's mediatorial work, you now have access to God whenever you choose through prayer. Through prayer, you are in the very throne room of God every time you pray. And God is taking your prayers and your thankfulness and your dedication and your supplications, and he's bundling those up and phrasing them just the right way so they're pleasing to God as a gift to God. As by faith we lift our prayers to him through Christ. And his sacrifice was once and for all, not repeated like the Levitical priests. What a great high priest we have. Next week, we're going to find out why this covenant is so much better than the law. I hope you're as excited as I am. This new covenant is better because Jesus is better. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for just the truth of your word. Lord, again, it's some heavy lifting, but Lord, you carry us through every time. It always seems to make so much sense at the end, Lord. And I thank you for the wonderful truth that we share in, in Christ Jesus, the hope that we have in him. What a great high priest. What a wonderful new covenant, Lord. I pray, Lord, that all who are here today who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior would embrace how great Jesus is. What a great high priest. If there's any in our midst, Lord, who do not know you, I pray today would be the day when they would cry out to God. They would recognize their sins, repent, cry out to God in need of a Savior. Lord, only you can do that. I pray it be your will, Lord. If there's one here who does not know you, today would be the day. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Help us, Lord, as we finish this message, as we meditate on it, as we listen again, as we go through the discussion questions throughout the week, that we would grow more and more into the image of your Son. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.